You're listening to the Darius Daniels Podcast. You know, one of the observations that I've made about this amazing place called Earth is the beauty of its diversity. I mean, you can see this diversity in the plant kingdom. The trees in Florida do not look like the trees in New Jersey. Shout out to everybody in New Jersey and Florida. Not better or worse, just different. We see this diversity also in the animal kingdom. That dogs don't look like cats and cats don't look like horses and horses don't look like lions. It's diverse. And we also see this diversity in the human kingdom. Our hue is different. Our makeup is different. Our size, shape, gifts, talents, acquired skills are all different. And if you believe like I do that our creator and our designer, God, does everything intentionally, then that means that diversity is intentional, that in some way, human flourishing is contingent upon, predicated upon, affected by our diversity. That somehow, some way, value is added to our lives by individuals who do not look like us. Therefore, to push back against diversity, to unappreciate or to underappreciate diversity is to rob yourself of a blessing and of a benefit that was intended for you from your creator and your designer, your God. And I believe it's important for us to understand that. And I I believe it's important for us to embrace that specifically along the lines of race. You know, there have been talks for decades about racial reconciliation in this country. And much of the talk about racial reconciliation really ends up with a racial toleration as a result of exhaustion. We become exhausted and fatigued about talking about it. But it is. America's original sin. And I want to be clear, there's no other country that I would want to live in in the world. I've visited other ones. I I love America. But when you love something, that does not mean you ignore its imperfections. Where do you do that at? If you love your marriage, you do everything that you can to improve it. If you love your church, you do everything that you can to improve it. If you love your children, you do everything that you can to cause them to thrive and to flourish. And sometimes that means addressing things that they don't want to address and saying things that it may be hard to hear. And ladies and gentlemen, racism is a twofold issue. It is. It is a matter of hearts and it's a matter of systems. It's sin in hearts and sin in systems. And the sin in the hearts is addressed by personal transformation, the gospel. The sin in systems is addressed by laws and both of them are equally important. And today we're going to have an important conversation around this subject because I believe getting this right is key and critical to human flourishing. My life has personally been enriched as a result of the diversity of relationships that have been a part of it. And I think that's the way our God intended it. And I think that's the way he designed it. And we're going to have a conversation today that I believe is going to help us further that cause. You are really about to eavesdrop on an unfiltered conversation that I'm getting ready to have. I'm warning you, it's going to challenge some of you in a way you probably have not been challenged before, but I want to encourage you to adopt a posture of listening, hopefully learning as you gain some insight into the mind, into the experiences of people of color. And I'm excited to have our guest 
today who's a scholar and a theologian. He's going to aid and assist us in becoming more unified in overcoming some of the racial barriers and hurdles that impact and affect this country and affect all people, specifically people of color. His name is Dr. Eric Mason, and he's the next guest on the Darius Daniels podcast. Well, everybody, I am excited about our guest today. It's a dear friend of mine, a brother, actually right down the street from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's an author. He's a theologian. He's a pastor. He leads the Epiphany Fellowship of Churches, multi-congregational movement in different parts of the country. His most recent work to me is one of his most riveting works. It's called Woke Church. I want you to welcome to the Darius Daniels podcast, my brother, Dr. Eric Mason. What's up, bro? Bro, I am excited to be on here. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, you 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 are soaring, brother. Um, the new work that you have put out on relationships and understanding how to judge relationships and man, um, amazing and to me one of the premier preachers of our time that is able to go logos, pathos, and your ethos is nastier than nasty. And uh, makes makes me do this the stanky the stanky face and um man uh, we are we are thankful for what God is doing with you brother man thank you man and so glad to have you on you know I wish the circumstances were a little different but I feel like this is kind of Esther ish call to the kingdom at, for such a time as this and I want to have a yeah. a conversation it's going to be challenging but I, I really felt yeah. like. We could have had this conversation across the aisle, but I I didn't want to take that approach. I wanted people to get an inside view of the way Mm -hmm. we would kind of talk about things like this, you know, in the privacy of our own phone calls. And I want people to I want people to really, really get a sense of of one, some of the emotional and contextual realities we're dealing with as a people of color in America. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the steps that we're trying to take as faith leaders to serve people well in that context. And then at the same time, uh, bro, I also want to I want to provide some assistance to our allies. I think I, I think one of the things that's really, really important during seasons, situations like this is for us to be able to provide as much guidance as we can. And 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 I, I know where you are with this. Like, okay, we aren't going to do the work and we're going to do the, re- <laughs> we're going to do the research, but we do want to provide some guidance and some coaching to people who are genuinely like, okay, I am aware I've done some of the work. I understand some of the realities help us help you. I want to, I want to be able to speak into that a little bit. So first of all, you know, in light of the recent um, death of George Floyd. Just talk a little little bit about what you've seen in terms of the impact that this has had on the African American community. Well, I think the impact, um, you know, when you go all the way back to Trayvon Martin, you know, the you know, you go back to those string of deaths that kind of began this new wave of racial awareness in our country. I feel like those first deaths 
were kind of like the wake up call, but it didn't wake anybody up outside of the community. It woke black people up again. Mm. And, um, and so I think it was like, Oh, we, if this ain't nothing's changed. (laughs) And, um, and, and so I think what ended up happening, I think what ended up happening is black started reawakening. So you had the black lives matter movement. You had, uh, 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 African-Americans, uh, who are, you know, who are connected to evangelicalism kind of saying, you know, man, what, what's happening, you know? And so and then you had a resurgence of different mystery cults in the black community, whether you're talking about comedic ideology, Nuwapians, Hebrew Israelites, all of those different things like had a major surge, if you will, during this time. And that surge came because blacks are like, man, we're going to have to double down and begin building our own spheres of, uh, and our own bunkers for self-improvement and development. I think these last few deaths have almost felt numb for most black people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's like this numbness. There's not an apathy. There's a numbness to almost it's the stamp that sealed the signet of their need to being emotional segregation from white people. And, um, and I think that that, that right there, man, I think is I mean, I feel it more than ever now from so many, and I feel different things within myself as well. Hope that makes sense. It does. I'm going to actually unpack a few things because you, you hit on a few and, um, there's one thing sticking out that I want to make sure that, that we get to, as you kind of talked about some of these ethnic identity tribes that have kind of reemerged or emerged in yeah. some sense. And I think they're pre- pre- presenting evangelistic obstacles for us in the African-American yeah. community. But so a couple of things I just kind of want you to unpack, right? Just so that everybody's clear on what we're talking about. I think there's a lot of controversy and confusion around the word black, the phrase black lives matter. So for people who have been misinformed about it, would you please just take a minute and unpack and explain what is at the heart of that movement? Yeah, I think um, outside of the organization, Black Lives that's what Matter. I mean, yeah, outside the organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The because <laughs> yeah, you know that's something different. It is um, the um, and I'm not dogging them. I'm just right. saying it's just something different. Mm-hmm. Um, Black Lives Matter as a hashtag was just started. I don't even know who the first person is. I I would love to know the first person to actually use the hashtag. I wonder, is there a way of searching it? I'm pretty sure someone can figure it out. But from my understanding, it was in, it was in the response to saying, I know everybody else is assumed to matter, but we're saying also black lives should matter just like other lives seem to matter, particularly white lives mattering, right? So I think when we look at the the doctrine of Imago Dei, mm-hmm. right? The doctrine of the Imago Dei believes that everyone's created in the image of God. We would say at the fall, um, everybody still has the image of God. It's defaced but not erased. In other words, we'll, we'll, we'll see marriages that last for 30, 40, 50 years 
because people still benefit from the Imago Day, even though they're not in a relationship with mm-hmm. God anymore, mm-hmm. right? So when we, so 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 there's still dignity and value in every human being, whether you're saved or not. So we're saying Black lives should have not only the dignity that God created it with, but man of all ethnicities, particularly white people, need to affirm Black dignity in different spheres. Whether or not we're talking about affirming Black dignity in in um not uh, having white images over everything, affirming black dignity when it comes to uh, white Jesus was not a true image of Jesus, affirming black dignity, you know, when it comes to uh, 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 all our superheroes being white. In other words, uh, affirming black dignity because for the last 400 years in the Western Hemisphere, black dignity has been under systematic attack and now racial um, indignity is in the sociological DNA of every single person cross ethnically in the Western Hemisphere. Perfect. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things that I often hear when people are discussing the term Black Lives Matter, one, there is some conflation between the concept and the or- and the organization. And I'm with you. I'm not dogging the organization at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yet at the same time, I think what ends up happening is because people are conflating the two, a lot of the pushback and pushback, and that's gonna that's the word, not feedback, but a lot of the pushback, I feel like uh, people get sometimes is as if when someone is saying black lives matter, it's as if we're saying other lives don't matter. Yeah, yeah. and you know, to me, that's the equivalent equivalent of it's October's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. That's the equivalent of me saying to people who are trying to remedy the issue of breast cancer prevent it from happening unnecessarily to people that is the equivalent of me saying to them well prostate cancer matter too yeah i mean it's like if we said animal lives matter everybody would throw their finger up like this yes if we said if we said the ecosystem matters ozone layer matters lettuce organic lettuce matters when we say black lives matters it's almost it's it's the 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 response to that is the the fragility of that whites have been trained in to push back on black lives mattering that's why um if you see the false dichotomies when we bring up issues you say why are you making this a race issue and we're like how are you saying making this a race issue when everything in our society revolves around race mm-hmm. so yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to wanted to emphasize that so that people are clear on when that is you when that phrase is used, what is actually meant. And we feel like as much as some people may be uncomfortable hearing it, I want I would want them to know we're way more uncomfortable having to say it. We wish <laughs> we didn't have to say it. We wish that our experience in this country wasn't such where we had to affirm and reaffirm. And that statement is not a statement of superiority. It's it's simply a statement of equality. And so that's different too. So I think sometimes when people compare movements like this to a Klan, to the Klan movement or to the alt-right, it's a false comparison because one is saying we're equal. The other saying we're superior. That's not the same thing. You used another term I want you to define. Um, They're going to be two more. (laughs) One's really, one's really a firecracker, but use the term fragility. So when people hear white fragility, there are times where they take that as an insult. 
So right. unpack what you mean by that term so that people can be properly informed, please. Yeah. So when we talk about white fragility, right, there is a book that was written. Um, I'm pulling it up because I'm in my library, but yeah, I, I I'm trying it. to. Uh, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, um, Robin uh, D'Angelo, uh, she writes extensively. She's been writing actually 30 years on the subject. And one of the things that she talks, she it first started out with an essay that she wrote in the late eighties, early nineties, or maybe maybe in the eighties, where she began talking about the issue of white fragility. And um, when when we talk about the idea of white fragility, um, whites have been trained um, to fear black life. Mm-hmm. Okay, now now for 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 four hundred years, there's been propaganda on the image of blacks. So when you look at that reality, when, for instance, I'll give you an example of white fragility. Um, Trayvon Martin or whoever, or any one of uh, uh, um, uh, black siblings are, are killed in the street and nobody responds. And then somebody finally responds to Gregory, um, um, uh, Gregory uh, and, and Arbery, right? And mm-hmm. both of those deaths. Mm-hmm. The black people are just angry Angry, angry, angry. Then a white person starts crying. I can't believe this is happening. And then now all of the attention shifts from those who are directly impacted by it to the white person who's finally crying because everybody's trying to calm the white person down. But when it comes to black rage and black anger, we want to try to settle it down. And so white fragility is the willingness to constantly, um, help whites not to feel the weight of the generational uh, passing down of whiteness that's a social construct and making whites feel more comfortable in their whiteness versus letting them feel the weight of their whiteness and, and while blacks have to feel the weight of racism on us we're shamed because we call out racism but they're uh, they're tethered away from feeling the weight of the existence of the social construct of whiteness's impact on everything in our sphere man yeah you know, and one of the things that I think, well, first of all, thank you for unpacking that. But one of the things that I think, bro, is so, it's it's so important is that, I'll put it this way. It is, I think it's okay to be unaware. Yeah. Right? To a degree. Yeah. It's not okay to be arrogant and unaware. At the, at the same <laughs> time, you understand? Absolutely. And so I think one of, one of the things that happens is, so when these terms are kind of thrown out, sometimes there's this visceral and defensive reaction because the assumption is, uh, this is condescending, I'm being attacked, uh, this is reverse racism, when the truth of the matter is, it's just terminology used to describe a reality that you may not be aware of. And I, I'm not even sure how you can really be or say that you're a Christian and not know that there are things about you you don't know. There's the <laughs> there's the unknown self. It's this whole idea. Right. Lord, search my heart. Lord, show me me. My heart is deceitful. There can be things in me about me that I can't see. And um, I find that really, really confusing and, and a little disconcerting. So here it is. And um, I want to turn this corner here. Someone's listening and they're thinking, okay, tell me what all of this has to do with the gospel. What does this have to do with Christianity? 
Why are you as spiritual leaders talking about this? Someone is thinking, okay, Darius, why are you even discussing this on the podcast? So could you speak into that a little bit to help people who may be wrestling with that? Yeah. So I start with God's wheelhouse. God has what's called, <laughs> um, you know, extrinsic and in, uh, communicable and communicable attributes. Mm-hmm. Those attributes that are his alone and those attributes that are shared by those who are um, he, uh, his creation. One of those attributes is justice. Okay. Um, that justice is rightly applying who God is and what God says in the ability to make right judgments and relationships. So, so, so when we look at that reality of talking about justice, Jesus says, you, you, woe to you Pharisees and Sadducees for you tithe mint, you tithe cumin, but you neglected the weighty matter, weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and faithfulness, mm-hmm. which is a repeat of Micah. Now, Jesus says these are weightier matters of the law. Now, if, if he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself, is a fulfillment of the law, he died to fulfill the law, then he equates justice with what it means to love God and love neighbor, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So in light of that reality, the gospel opens us up to practically love God and love neighbor rightly. Why? Because uh, Jesus utilizes justice as as one of the pieces of the hermeneutical lens that we use to look at the Bible. When he says, you, you, you should have looked at the weightier matters of the law. But then he says over in another passage, uh, you know, John 5, 37, he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you find eternal life, but they all speak of me. So he gives us justice, he gives us faithfulness, he gives us mercy, and he gives us looking for him. Those are the hermeneutical lens in which we should be using to look at all of scripture. So now when we look at this idea of justice, that means from just from, from the righteous blood of Abel all the way down to the eschatological return of Jesus to set up justice. Justice begins in the Bible and it ends in the Bible. So for me, ignoring justice is to ignore Jesus, ignore justice, ignore the Bible, mm-hmm. is to ignore the gospel, and it's to ignore one of the major meta-narratives of Scripture, man. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, former CEO of World Vision, Richard Stearns, and um, I, I got an opportunity to spend some time with him. I was actually on that board for <laughs> about a month or so and my schedule just got too crazy, but I met him incredible guy. I felt like he practiced what he preaches. He wrote a book called the hole in our gospel. <laughs> and, uh, his, his, his whole argument is that in the Western part of the world, you know, primarily, but in America specifically, there is an understanding of the gospel that really limits it to bro, a gospel of atonement. Yeah, it is absolutely. just it is just simply viewed as Jesus died to save my sins with no implications of how the evidence of that conversion that you went through, no implications of how it's lived out in terms of the way you treat your neighbor and um, love them well. This whole idea of the great commission and the great commandment, justice, lo- loving people out loud. Now. I went that direction because I want you to find this third term, which I think is probably the most controversial one, but it's the subject of your book, right? So, <laughs> and so it's this whole idea of, okay, now that you've mentioned how this issue of race mm-hmm. applies to how the gospel applies to this issue of race, 
and yeah. how a gospel void of justice is not uh, the gospel of Jesus or the God, the gospel in the Bible. Right. My question is, okay, what role does the church play in these issues? And you wrote a little bit about it in your book, woke church. So mm-hmm. the term woke, I I'm seeing it used in evangelical circles specifically, maybe not exclusively, but specifically I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it used in a disparaging way and, and not, mm-hmm. and, and not, primarily by african-american evangelicals i mean there are some there's some pockets but it's oh you're one of those woke guys or the woke movement is getting in the way of the true gospel so unpack that and clarify and explain that a little bit please well one of the things that's important to understand is there are principles in the bible that culture has verbiage that we can borrow in order to be a, a an appropriate way of defining a biblical term by reappropriating something in culture. <laughs> Christians have done this forever. I mean, the Bible, like like the the law of Moses, is written based on Hittite treaties. It's set up like Hittite treaties. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that we you know um, Tertullian. Uh, the word Trinitas or our word Trinity comes from Egyptian mysticism where he took the mysticism term Trinitas and co-opted for the doctrine as we see in the Bible. And the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but he used the word Trinitas as a way. I got it. I got it right here, uh, up, up here, right on my wall, yeah, I'm seeing, right I'm, here. I'm envying your library <laughs> right now. <laughs> you know, he, he, he uses the word Trinitas and takes that word and says, oh, this, this makes sense of the three in one concept uh, that we already believe in scripture. So Christians have been reappropriating terms from culture in order to develop common ground. Even the unk in the, in the in the Coptic Bible is used as a way to I, I wouldn't wear it, but I'm just saying it was used by Egyptian Christians in the Coptic Church in order to the the, the, cop, the ultimate life, and of course through the cross we experience life. So woke is a term when it says awake sleeper in Ephesians five and rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Woke just means awareness that something's wrong with society and it needs to be fixed. Mm. And so it's being applied to racial injustice. I'm saying, well, the wokest people on the planet should be Christians because Christians are supposed to be the best human beings. Why should we be the best human beings? Because God is the manufacturer of our humanity. And because God is the manufacturer of our humanity, therefore, the best human beings on the planet should be those who have been restored to him to be fully Imago Dei, or as Romans 8 would say, Imago Christu, upgraded humanity. We should be the best human beings on the planet. And because we should be the best human beings on the planet, we should be the wokest and most aware of what's wrong with the world because God in his word has told us what the world should be, what the world is not, and the cross is the mechanism to re-merge and restore and bring comprehensive shalom to all creation. Now, I've watched you kind of make this turn and be way be way more ver- vocal and vo- verbal about this. I've watched you carry this burden for the gospel in a different way. And I kind of, I've seen how it's, it has really made you a target in a different kind of way. And when I say a target, I mean yeah. a target of criticism from primarily evangelical Christians. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've yeah, seen that. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming you and I haven't talked about this, but I'm assuming it is coming as come at great price to you. I remember listening to Lecrae once talk about some of the ramifications that him speaking out on this issue had for his career. 
talked about how he went from 3,000 people at a concert to 300. And to me, I just find there's part of me that finds that surprising. And this is why I want to go with this. But then there's a part of me that when I think, when I look back historically, it seems to me that whether it was on the issue of slavery and or the issue of Jim Crow, um, specifically, even when you look at Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, the fact that he had to write that and who he had to write it to religious leaders was kind of sad. It seems to me, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong and speak to this a little bit. It seems to me though, that the evangelical church has kind of been, people politicize this and it's not political, it's biblical. It seems to me that they've been on the wrong side of history and to me, the wrong side of the Bible when it has come to some of these issues of injustice. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about that. And then two, I want people to enter into your world a little bit and to hear about some of the attacks, the criticism and the price you've just had to pay for simply advocating that people live out the whole gospel. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Um, I'm rarely asked that question. This may be the first time I'm actually publicly asked that question. Matter of fact, when you, when we were trying to get on here, Priscilla Shire had just called me and was asking me the same question. Mm. Um, and so, um, uh, so I went to a historically black college, mm-hmm. right? I went from there and I went to one of the premier even I went to the Harvard of evangelical seminaries. Yes. Okay. You know, um, I went to Dallas theological seminary and then I went to one of the Harvard, the Northern Harvard, Yale, the Princeton's of the evangelical seminaries in the North. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to the black pillar of evangelicalism's church. He's my spiritual father. Mm-hmm. So I went to Dallas seminary, I went to Gordon Conwell. Um, I went to, you know, I, I went to Oakland Bible fellowship while I was in seminary, was trained in ministry there. I, um, and then I got platformed by some of the greatest. I've, I've preached at Gospel Coalition. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've preached for John Piper. I've preached for Timothy Keller. I've preached for D.A. Carson. I can I can name you, mm-hmm. give you phone numbers of the top evangelical white leaders. Mm-hmm. When so I was hailed as, oh, you know, hey man, he gets it. We can we can parade him as that. Now I was the now inside. I was like, now all right. Now <laughs> I'm just letting y'all know y'all are putting me up, but I, I'm, I'm I am not your Negro to be paraded to garner or affirm. Now I'm, and I'm not dogging any of those people, mm-hmm. but I am saying, um, I know that. That there's going to be a time where you're going to find out I'm actually a real a, a blackity black dude. Now, when I say blackity black, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the N word. I'm not. talking about a guy that has never forgotten that I live in a society where I know that I know that there are platforms that used my education and my color as a way to diffuse any thoughts of there being any racism in these spheres. 
I remember being invited. I'll never say the person who did it being invited to a conference three months before it started because they were doing a conference on ministry that you and I love. Mm-hmm. I'll just say mm-hmm. that. And they realized they didn't have no Negroes. Mm-hmm. So before the conference, I was called and they said, Eric, can you come to the conference? I said, cool. This was early. This was years ago. And um, when I came in, the person said, um, the person said, man, I, one of the people said, one of the leaders, major leader, a very influential said, man, I'm sorry that we, I know what this looks like, but, but I'm like, it is what it looks like. Don't make it that. Mm-hmm. Another time I'm in a room with, I'm talking about, um, D, if I told you who was in this room, this is another room. It's like a who's who of evangelicalism cross charismatic to cessationalist lines. I'm sitting in there. I preached another brother preached, sister preached, and they told us we were a credit to our race in the room. And, and so, and so I'm, and so when I began feeling the discomfort of feeling like I was, I'm going to use this word and I'm using it in a very, very, hopefully it doesn't hurt you or nothing, but I didn't want to, I didn't want my people to ever think I was a cold. Mm-hmm. I get it. But more than that, I wanted God to know that if he called me to eat locusts and honey and put on burlap and go into the wilderness that I can't be born. Mm-hmm. And that the gospel and prophetic ministry was more important than checks, opportunity, and being patted on the back. So I had to make a conscious decision that I would lose in order to gain. And so I said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm, I, I must be willing to lose my life to gain it. I love Jim Elliott's rule, and I hope I get it right. You heard of Jim Elliott's rule? I have not. <laughs> you know, uh, let me see. I'm, I'm going to pull it up real quick because this is um, Jim Elliott's rule. Jim Elliott's rule. Jim Elliott's rule is this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. even talking about this almost brings me to tears because I've struggled with with how much I would lose and whether or not I can control it. But um, I'm just to the point where I know that I can't sleep with my three black boys being in this home and raising a black woman and their cats coming behind me where I have to do what I believe God wants me to do, man. Well, for those that don't know, you pay great price. And what I'm trying to do is to pull back the curtain and allow people to see the price that is actually paid by simply trying to be faithful to what we believe the scriptures call for. And I I, I just want to salute you, man. I, I want to let you know how much I feel like it matters the example that you set and um and I feel like it's really really made a great difference and and um there's a price I'm sure you pay on every level relationally 
financially, <laughs> professionally. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but it is a reality. And what do we say? Hey, the apostles died. We, yeah. we have to lose some opportunity. <laughs> It kind of yeah. What's interesting is my church used to be multi ethnic. <laughs> I remember that. What, yeah, what, yeah. Um, we've probably over the years we're a transient church. We understand it because we're an urban core, so we've been through about four or five thousand people mm-hmm. um, in good ways mm-hmm. um, because we understood that we're a transient sending platform. But we went from. 40% white, mostly, well, 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 65% black, a, pan, a pan-African black, which is black, African-American, you know, Caribbean, mm-hmm. African, international. Now we are a black church, basically, because most of, during that time, we lost most of our whites. So all of that wasn't to the race thing, but most of it was, man. Mm. Just because you were speaking out on it. They were uncomfortable. Yeah, they said I changed. They said I changed. Yeah, they said I changed. So but they were they were yeah. they were simply familiar with a compartmentalized version of you. They didn't. They felt like you changed, but You're right. <laughs> but uh, social circumstances required you to speak up a little differently. So let's talk a little bit of. And we quadrupled in black, and then we quadrupled in black. Really so weird. Yeah, we quadrupled. Yeah, in the number of African Americans that that come now, well, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a place they feel cared for. You know, one of the things that I want us I want us to talk about is something I experienced. I've never experienced this at any other conference ever. Mm-hmm. So this past year, I think it was in October, I did your Thrive Your Frequency conference mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. Yeah. And um, we're pulling up to the venue and I see people outside protesting. It's Hebrew Israelites. Yeah. Outside (laughs) the church conference. Yeah, man. Protesting the conference. And uh, so when I walk in, uh, I greet the host and I say something to the the sort of, hey, that's that's really interesting. And, And they started telling me how disruptive um, some of that group had been attempting to infiltrate the conference and things of that particular nature. So yeah. I'm, I'm bringing that up for this reason, because what I'm trying to do is pull back the curtain a little bit and allow people to see some reality that urban leaders are wrestling with. Um, I'm going to tell you what I saw, and then you tell me if you see this. It seems as if the the evangelical apathy during civil rights movement created the perfect storm and circumstances for the rise of the nation of Islam. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Then, you know, as I'm looking, as I'm looking at this in my lifetime, the same evangelical apathy seems to have given rise to, or created the perfect storm for the rise of some of these tribes within the urban context that many people don't even know exists, right? If if they're just not familiar with what's going on in this re, in in this uh, sector of our of our yeah. society, and so yeah. I, I kind of want to know <laughs> your thoughts about that because people, I don't think they realize the even the evangelistic obstacles that it presents when you're trying to reach an African American unbeliever who sees blatant injustice being done. 
and sees in some sense a certain segment of Christians seem to endorse it, some endorse or condone it, some explain it away, and they see others who are silent on it. And so inviting a person into that kind of religious space is inviting them literally into a lion's den. They're saying, why would I be a part of something that is seemingly self-destructive for me? So could you could you speak to a little bit to that and so that people kind of know like, hey, this is what's happening. And and these are the implications it's having on the spreading of the gospel. One of the mo- one of my profound, most profound mentors over the last 10 years have been Carl, Carl Ellis. Um, he wrote a book called um, Free at Last with a question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he says, he says, he, I've read his dissertation, read through parts of it, his doctoral dissertation. And he said, there are three things that every person hungers for, but particularly African-Americans mm-hmm. have had missing in their experience. He said, significance, dignity, and identity. Significance, meaning, you know, what's my purpose? Dignity, what's my value? Identity, who am I? He said, those three questions are the three questions that have constantly not been answered in our country. And so the black church was, for the first hundred years pre and post-slavery, um, answering that question this he said around the 19 the year 1900 i mean 19, yeah 1900 the turn of the uh century post-slavery the because um the church had begun to experience some of the spoils of privilege some of it it began to turn its ship away from it and so groups like noble drew ali who was the precursor to the nation of islam and others began to, and I began to study this deeply, and I watched, I saw it happen. The only one that kept sort of a, a, a uh, engagement of it was uh, Bishop Mason with the Church of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. The AME Church started to turn because the a- AME Church started to become a black middle class. You know, the Methodist Church started to become a black middle class. National Baptist and Baptist Church began to become a a, 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 a middle class, but the ones who were sending missionaries during the northern migration was mainly the Church of God in Christ. That's why so many Church of God in Christ churches are in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that to, I'm saying that to say is there has been a need, and it's come up again of the need for significance, dignity, identity. The internet has exploded with images that we were given in moderation. Now. It's now given in access. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, back in our day coming up, sure. the, you know, we had we had public enemy, you know, yeah. and all of, you know, all of those different things that were asking those questions, you know, tribe called quest leaders of the new school, uh, 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 all of those different groups. Now, the Internet is filled with other options that are trying to fulfill the void of significance, dignity, identity. So you got groups like. The, um, the nation of Islam, you got groups like Hebrew Israelites who aren't monolithic, who are answering these questions. And to be honest, African-American millennials and Gen Z are hungering for the ethnic question to be answered through the lens of what's my value? What's my purpose? 
and, 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 and those type of things, significance, dignity, and identity, and who am I? They're looking for us to answer those questions. Our sermons have to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Our missiology has to answer that question. Our thought leadership should answer that question. Our institution building should answer that question. Our art should answer that. Qu- answer all of those questions. They should be constantly flooding African Americans. What's my What's my value? What's my purpose? And who am I, man? Yeah, it's that's amazing, bro. And I'm telling you, I've seen I've seen it. We saw it in our congregation where people who who we thought were like really grounded believers were so shaken by things that they were seeing socially, so traumatized by the seemingly apathetic response of the church that it just made them vulnerable for someone coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to take this same Bible, but I'm going to show you. At least they think they're showing that I'm going to show you your dignity and your worth. And it's really creating an evangelistic obstacle. So when people say things like just preach the gospel, what I want them to hear is, yo, this is in the way of preaching the gospel. We're trying to preach the gospel. But when people are being shot in the streets and you're silent and when there's mass incarceration and you're silent and when banks are having to settle with the U.S. government because um, they're disproportionately handing out higher interest rates to people who make the same income um, as other ethnic groups. Like when that is happening, <laughs> it's yeah. it's really difficult for people to receive that gospel. And so I really feel like th- yeah. this is something that's key and critical. Thank you for your time. I, I want to wrap up here. Um, but I do want to answer this question. There are people, you know, sometimes people hear things, uh, discussions like this, and they assume <clears throat> that one, someone's like simply just disregarding the contributions of other races, not aware of the contributions that our white brothers and sisters have made throughout history to, to create a more just society and a more biblical church. So there are allies who are like, you know, Darius, Eric, I do not claim to understand your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it feels like to have African-American sons and have to have the conversations with them that you have to have. I don't know what mm-hmm. it feels like for my heart to be palpitating when blue lights get behind me. I, I, I don't I don't know what that I don't know what that feels like, but. I do want to help in whatever way I can. And I don't know how. Please yeah. give me some guidance. What would we, what would we say to them? Well, what I say to them is I wrote a manual <laughs> on it. Yes. The first the, the first section is be aware. This, yeah. The second section is acknowledge. The third section is be accountable. But guess what the last section is? It's be active. So I got a whole section in the latter part of the book that basically helps white, black, multi-ethnic churches uh, whatever your persuasion is or whatever your cultural ethos is on what it looks like to be active. One of the things that I began, um, one of the things about all, all of that is a way to be active because I think being active, you whenever you are active and you're trying to get active without having some level of history that informs what you're being active about, the thing that you're active about becomes your atonement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So you think if I do this thing, I've atoned for racism mm-hmm. where, whereas, you know, there has to be reciprocity and restitution that equals and exceeds the activity of what's happened. And so one of the things that I think we have to think about when we talk about this is you have to begin educating yourself on the history of racism so that you're constantly up to speed on the depth of impact that the raping and the, I mean, think about it. Think about it, man. Think about it, man. If if somebody got raped in your church right now, pastor, Mm -hmm. the first thing you would do is you would call authorities. You would get them safe and you would get them to the hospital so that they can get the necessary thing, get DNA, all those different things, and you would get them counseling. You would come around them with so many different things because you have a heart for what they went through and you want to make sure that they get healed. Well, African-Americans during slavery were raped. Families were broken up. No economy. And listen, bro, we were let out of slavery with no counseling, with no economic plan, with no infrastructure. And you expect us to now, after all of these years, to have that generational trauma handed down to us to be able to have one fix that helps us. And so I think I think that there needs to be a connection to the narrative constantly, not where they're shaming themselves, because I don't want people shame. We don't want people doing stuff out of shame. But we do want people doing stuff out of being educated so that they're saying, I know I'm doing this, but I know that this is just one of the steps that we all need to be collectively working on. Whether we're saying because of the uh, the dignity, identity, and significance issue, man, we got a lot of paintings of white Jesus in our church so that it won't be impact our white brothers and sisters. How about we take down this false picture of Jesus in order to work against Images that infect and impact their ability to see themselves in the narrative of what God is doing and in opera. And so it's so many things that we can work through. But I think those are some beginning thoughts, thinking and push towards what it means to go to the next place of going awareness, acknowledge, accountability and action. And I feel like your book is a great resource for that. Um, And I think I I told you that when I. When I looked at it, and um, that's why I wrote an endorsement of it. Appreciate and, it, man. Appreciate it. it. It's an inc- it, it's the timing, such, <laughs> the timing of it. You wrote that book for such a time as this. So, man, thank you, thank you, Mace, for your candor. This is one of the things I wanted to do with this episode. I knew this was going to be so challenging for some of our listeners, but I wanted it to be candid. I wanted it to be unfiltered and unscripted and i feel like to the best of our ability we we delivered that thank you bro for all of the work that you're doing in the kingdom and i also want to thank you for this i want to thank you for not being and i don't mean it's in any negative way because we're all called to different spheres and metrons but i also want to thank you for your commitment not just to thought leadership but your commitment to serving the local church i do believe that we kind of live in an era where the dominant pastoral model is a model that leans heavy toward the leading and is light on and is light on the feeding. And I don't, and, and obviously we're all going to be more graced and gifted in one area than the other. Yeah. But in terms of pastoral yeah. responsibility, you're called to do both. I will give you shepherds yeah. after my own heart that will feed you with knowledge and understanding. <laughs> and, you know, just some of our cute formulaic approaches do not dismantle racism. Um, <laughs> they don't have the long-term transformative effect that 
um, the Bible promises to a person who's being, who's a follower of the virtuous values of vantage point of Jesus. And yeah. I just feel like I just want to salute you for not abandoning the commitment to the local church and modeling what it means, like what it means to be a leader and a feeder. And I think, yeah. and yeah, I yeah. think being a modern day example of what it means to be, to follow a pastoral model that is similar to that of your Charles Spurgeon's and your Martin Lloyd Jones and Moody's people who led thriving churches, but also left the world with more than buildings to sit in. They left the world with, they left the world with words to live by. And uh, that's what I'm rocking. That's, I'm, that's, that's what I'm rocking with, bro. I'm, I'm on that. You know, not just buildings, not just how many campuses you got. Yeah, when I'm dead and gone, my building's not going to help anybody. But the words that I write and speak will preach from the grave. And uh, thank you for that, bro. Appreciate you. Eric Mason, everybody. Thanks for having me on, brother. All right, bro. Thanks so much, man. Incredible. Well, everybody, welcome to one of my favorite sections of the show. It is the Ask Dr. Darius section. I say this is one of my favorite sections. I think I say a lot of sections of the show are my favorite sections. I like the whole show. I love doing this. I'm having a blast. I hope you are, too. Well, listen, this is one of my favorite sections of the show because I get to hear from you. This podcast is Conversations of transformation about faith life and culture we want to talk about all things not just some things and we believe that this is a space and place this question and answer section where we get to hear from you and you get to drive the conversation so if you have questions you want me to answer why don't you send them to me on instagram send them to me on twitter and who knows maybe next week i'll be answering your question on the Darius Daniels podcast. Our first question comes in from Brandon and Brandon wants to know, Brandon must know I'm a basketball fan. He wants to know my thoughts on the NBA potentially resuming its season. Well, Brandon, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it as a fan because I want to see the season finish. I'm excited about it as one who played basketball previously. I wasn't that good. I did all right. I did all right. And, um, Who's looking forward to seeing the guys go out and uh, make the highest and best use of themselves on the court. And I'm excited about it because even though it's going to be done in a bubble and there are going to be limitations in terms of who is involved, it is going to give some people an opportunity to get back to work. And that's going to give them an opportunity to provide for their families and to support those things that matter to them. So I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be entertaining for the country. I think the country needs it. And I think it's going to be a healthy distraction, a healthy distraction. It seems to me that the NBA is being very considerate of things like COVID testing. So that they're going to do their best to take care of the players. And it seems to me that they're going to make a commitment that they're not going to test players at the expense of not having adequate testing for the public. And uh, with that being the case and with that being in place, I feel really excited and really good about the season and go Sixers. (laughs) All right. 
Our next question comes in from Susan and Susan's a therapist and Susan mentioned how she was blessed by and encouraged by the podcast with Dr. Anita Phillips. That was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful podcast with Dr. Anita. She's incredible. But anyway, she's a therapist and she has this question. She says, in providing premarital counseling, there are times when I get a a couple who is not Christian and they don't want to talk about God. What's your opinion on whether or not I should refer them to different therapists? Wouldn't I be setting them up to fail by not including the necessary principles of the creator of marriage? On the other hand, would any counseling be better than no counseling? Susan, thank you for what you do. Thank you for being a heart healer and a life helper. And I think your question is insightful. And this is where I'm going to answer it. (laughs) It depends. I know some people feel like this is a black and white issue, but to me, it is not. And so this is what I mean by that. My question would be to you, is using the name God essential for your effectiveness? So this is what I mean by that. Some people do not have to use the name God to talk about the principles of God. Some people don't have to use the name of God to talk about the principles of God. And some people may feel like that's uh, abandoning your faith. It, it may mean people may feel like that's not standing for him. People may feel like that's inappropriate selling out for money and fame and clients. Um, I think that's going to be a matter of personal conscience for you. You have to determine whether or not that is right or wrong for you. I can say it is very much possible to talk about the principles of God without using the name of God and to promote principles from scripture without quoting chapter and verse of scripture. And so I feel like you have to make the determination whether or not your practice is therapeutic only or if it's also evangelistic. Evangelistic in the sense that maybe when people are exposed to the creator's design and intent when it comes to things like marriage, that they may be more interested in the creator himself once they see the relevance that his word has for their life. Okay, next question comes in from David and David is going way back with this question. Uh, David is asking me, what are your thoughts on T.I.'s comments about his experience some time ago at Kanye's Sunday service at New Birth Church? (laughs) So for those of you who were uh, who may not be familiar with this, uh, Kanye West was doing Sunday services in different places across the country. And he did one at Atlanta at a church called New Birth, led by an incredible leader named Jamal Bryant. So here are my thoughts. One, I feel like it was a perfect storm. So, and I want to start with T.I. This is what we know about T.I. One, we know he's a sharp brother. Um, He's a man that's committed to bettering himself. We know that. He's a man who uses his influence and resources to better the community. We know that. Um, I personally do not believe that you should define all of a person by the worst of them. I don't want anyone to do that with me. I don't think God does that with us and I won't do it with others. Um, I also don't believe you can affect people you're insulting. I don't think we should live our life avoiding trying to be, uh, avoiding um, 
speaking truth so that people are not offended. I don't think we should be offensive, but we cannot control whether or not people are offended. So those are some things that I know. I also know that that T.I. is not anti-God. And at one point, at least, he was not anti-church. So I don't know if he's anti-church now or just a bit indifferent about it. So here's my question. Instead of looking at his frustration and what he said, I think people of faith, we need to ask the question, what drove him to that place? Let's think about it, right? He wasn't anti-church, at least at at one point, attended one, and he's not anti-God now. So I'm not espousing or endorsing his religious position or, or beliefs. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not defending him. That's not what I'm doing. I don't think this is about him. I think it's about us as a community of faith. I think we need to ask ourselves a question. If someone has angst toward hostility about church, who was once a part of it and a supporter of it, we need to kind of ask ourselves, what drove them to that place? We need to ask why. Now, obviously, something in that service triggered them. We need to ask, what is experienced? Is it, is it a legitimate trigger? Is he overreacting? Or is his reaction expected from someone who may have been exposed to something we don't know he was exposed to, right? It's almost like telling someone who's seen some things they shouldn't have seen. It's, it's experienced some things they shouldn't have experienced that, you know, you shouldn't be triggered. You shouldn't be upset. So I, I think that's important. I think, you know, we can't be controlled by... Christianity is not a fan club. We cannot be controlled by people's perceptions. But before we start judging their positions, we need to ask what drove them there. And did we contribute to that as a Christian community in any way? And then we need to address that. So he has the right to his opinion. However, the right to his opinion doesn't mean the opinion's right. In this instance, I think his perception was wrong. Um, He felt like they were intentionally being exploited. We know as a part of the Christian community that people ask for offerings, sometimes over and above offerings, regularly, frequently. Um, And I think that would have been done that Sunday, whether he was there or not. But I do understand that if you coincidentally show up at church on a Sunday and there are many multimillionaires that are and artists that are there that Sunday and (laughs) and it, it seems as if coincidentally a special offering is being raised, I see how anyone um, may see it that way. He has a right to his opinion. Doesn't mean he was right. We have a right to ours. So those are my thoughts there. Interesting. 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 Right. Okay. Um, here's one. Mika asks, every election season, it seems like the tensions among my fellow believers in my church community seem to rise. What's the best way to navigate relationships when everything seems to be so politicized? Mika, I'm going to say this. I think some tension is going to be unavoidable. I really do. When it comes to certain political beliefs some of them are discovered by people some of them are inherited and some of them are treated as sacred or more sacred than religious beliefs so i'm not quite sure how you can avoid the tension or excuse me how you can minimize the tension among others can't do much to control them i think what you have to decide during election season is what amount of exposure is safe for me how much can my heart handle Remember, your heart is your responsibility. And we have the ability to influence others, but we cannot control outcomes. There's going to be tension when people disagree. People are going to feel very, very strongly about this, even if they shouldn't. I really think believers, 
it's my position that our ultimate allegiance has to be to another kingdom and that yes and that's god's kingdom right and so we should seek the good and the welfare of our cities and our countries that we're a part of the scriptures instruct us to do but i do think sometimes people hold on to postures and positions uh more closely more tightly than they should and i don't know how you're going to pry their hands away from that i'm not saying it's not possible i'm saying it's not likely and because that's the case I would make the decision that was in the best interest of my own heart and my own soul, recognize them. I'm not going to be able to control them, but I can't control me and what I'm exposed to and how much I allow that to impact my emotional well-being. Yep. Sometimes you got to say, y'all don't talk to me about that because no political party neatly holds all of Christian theology. Last but not least, Colin asked this question. What is one thing that we can do as white brothers and sisters to do differently, excuse me, when it comes to addressing racism? But we just spent the majority of this podcast talking about it. I think Dr. Mason gave some really good insight when I asked him this question at the end of the podcast. But I'll say a few things really quickly. The first thing I want to say is the importance of listening. Um, and that is adopting the posture of a student, especially if you're a Christian. The word Christian um, is connected with, it's not synonymous with, but it's connected with the word disciple. And disciple is a learner. It means that you have a willingness to be taught. And there are times when I feel like it's easy to assume that we know more about the black experience in America than we do. And um, that causes us to make assumptions that are not always accurate. And I feel like sometimes we can assume we know no more because we're having conversations with people. And, um, but, but I want you to know, black is not just a color, it's a consciousness, it's an awareness. It's awareness that I could potentially be treated differently. That certain things that may be appropriate for others are not appropriate for me. And so, depending on the power dynamics of your relationship, that's going to determine how honest somebody is with, with you, right? So, if it's a supervisor speaking to someone that they lead or oversee and expecting a degree of candor when it comes to race relations, that person is going to have to have a lot of courage. So, I think most of your honesty is going to come from peers, not subordinates. I think it's important to keep that in mind. Okay. Um, so, I would just say learn, lean in, learn, lean in. And so, when I say lean in, I mean empathy. That's important. Okay, because certain events, whether it's police shootings or things of that particular nature, they're communal trauma. And when people are hurting, they need love, not lectures. Yep. And then thirdly, lift. That's engage. That's act. That's use your access to your relationships with others and spread the word, inform them about realities that they don't know about, bust and destroy and debunk myths that they're perpetuating, call out unconscious, implicit bias when you see it, hold accountable. And um, I think if we follow those three steps, we'll be further down the road in dealing with this issue. All right. Well, remember everybody, that's all the time I've got today. Remember everybody, please, that you can send me your questions. Instagram, Twitter, at Darius Daniels. And who knows, maybe next week I'll be answering your questions on this podcast. 
I want to thank you so much for listening to the Darius Daniels podcast. I'm going to ask if you have not subscribed to subscribe. That helps us get the word to as many people as possible. It helps you stay notified on when we're dropping new content. But your subscribing and your rating helps us get the word to as many people as possible. And if it's adding value to you, the only thing we ask you to do is to share it with someone else. Would you please do that for me? I want to reach as many people as possible. All right. We'll see you next time on the Darius Daniels podcast. Relevant Podcast Network.